If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. It's uh, The subject is medical errors, and we're talking about a great new book, When We Do Harm. The author, a doctor, Dr. Danielle Ofri, is a Bellevue-trained physician. She now serves as an attending physician teaching doctors over at Bellevue, which is actually one of the hospitals where uh, I trained. Uh, I don't think we overlapped, uh, Dr. Ofri, because... Uh, uh, I hit uh, Bellevue at the height of the uh, AIDS epidemic. I think you caught uh, some of the tail end of that during your training. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to train, but, uh, you know, pretty chaotic place. And, you know, probably there were, you know, some catastrophes, some medical errors. That happens when very sick people uh, hit uh, the medical uh, front lines. Um so of interest to me, you know, I read your bio, is that in addition to writing, uh, you're a musician. You play the cello. So do, do you argue for, you know, sort of a work-life balance for physicians? So many physicians are suffering from burnout, especially the ones who work in, you know, busy hospitals like Bellevue. Does that uh, help you uh, extend your medical career? Well, I'm always leery of the word balance because that puts a little bit of the onus, I think, on nurses and doctors to make sure that their lives are okay. And I think it's important to separate some of the stress at work. While we use the term burnout, I, I think many people are, are switching to the term moral injury. Mm -hmm. That is things where the system forces you to make decisions that are corrosive to your, you know, your own ethics and, and morals and, you know, give you, for example, so much work you can't possibly take good care of your patients. Right. So that I wouldn't call burnout. That I would call moral injury from the system. Mm -hmm. um, and that should be solved by the system, not by, you know, doctors mm -hmm. doing yoga and meditating. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I do think we need as human beings um, a variety in our personalities just to um, – live life. And I think part of uh, being a physician or a nurse is being a full human being for our patients, being aware of other things in life, the ability to, to think and feel and have passions. And I think just also to stay sane. So for me, I took up cello um, when my youngest daughter was born. She's now 14. So I'm 14 years into it. Musician might be a bit too much of a stretch of the term. I would say <laughs> that I take cello lessons, but I do love it. And it gives me a chance for one hour a day. Not that it's just different from doing medicine, but it's temperamentally different in the way that medicine is a chaos of a thousand things happening at once. Mm -hmm. When you play music, 
you reverse that curve. You're pointing at one thing to get that one note right, to make it sound beautiful, um, to, to make music, to think about that composer, what they were trying to convey, and, and to care about how, how it sounds, uh, which is something we don't do much of in medicine. So the sort of attention to beauty and the focus, so instead of being pelted in all directions by ringing phones and pagers, you're turning your focus inward and focusing it very strongly like, like a laser. And that that feels so good. It's so different. And, and the writing also uh, gives you an opportunity to uh, think and reflect about uh, your experiences, some of which you're very candid about. I mean, you know, under the duress of, uh, you know, uh, caring for multiple patients under chaotic circumstances, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we regret the decisions we make. And, you know, I think doctors uh, really suffer because, you know, we go through our training and, you know, we're A plus students, you know, we're academically perfect. And, you know, we reach all these milestones in terms of our uh, academic achievements to get into great medical schools and great residency programs. And then we confront the chaotic world of patients, which is not like a paper and pen exam. Um, stuff happens. Yeah, and I think, you know, patients, you know, don't come in where it says, you know, vasculitis, you know, tattooed across their chest. They come in, they just don't feel good. We have to figure it out. And you're right, things happen at once. A lot is happening. And we have very little time to reflect as to what happened, because there's always another patient to see or 10 more patients to see. And so for me, writing is a chance to take a step back and, and grapple with the issues that are raised, whether it was a medical error, whether it was a judgment call, whether it was a regret, um, or pride or any one of the many emotions that, that come up, guilt and shame come up a lot. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a chance to rewind the tape in real life. But in writing, you can rewind the tape. You can turn the case over. You can turn it inside out. You can dissect it. You could turn it into fiction if you want to explore other aspects of it. So for me, the writing is a chance to to think more, more deeply. And certainly, you know, when COVID was happening, you know, it was certainly a tornado. And I started keeping a journal and that was very helpful because I knew that I, there was no way I'd remember all of this. And then really in the middle, I began writing about it. And it took six months to actually publish it this week. But it was, again, the chance to take it back and, and think more you know, beyond just the surviving every day, which was how it felt during the time. Well, you, you certainly can offer a firsthand account of what it was like uh, being uh, at one of the hospital's hardest hit uh, in the world because, you know, Bellevue... Uh, you know, I, I live in that neighborhood and, you know, and I know the streets that lead up to Bellevue. And at one point, you know, it was just ambulance after ambulance after ambulance trundling up to the Bellevue emergency room. And, uh, very, very scary because, you know, you might've exceeded the capacity of your hospital to handle it. It was amazing to see how elastic the hospitals were and how much, you know, bigger, I think we were close to 400 at, at the peak, but however hard we got hit, you know, Elmhurst took a heavier hit and, and Lincoln and Queens Hospital. And, you know, it was really a team effort on a huge scale. I mean, New York City has a number of city hospitals that work together. And at some point we were transferring patients up to 35 or 40 at a time straight from the ER at Elmhurst or Queens over to Bellevue to help out our colleagues who were actually getting hit even far harder than we were. Wow. Uh, okay. So turning to some one of the topics that, uh, you know, you go into in your book, um, there's a revolution in medicine, and it's uh, been engendered by advances in computer science. There's something called AI uh, and machine learning. And it's actually gotten to the point where, you know, just as uh, 
Uh, IBM's Watson can play chess better than a human. Uh, there are computer programs that can discern uh, subtle patterns in um, MRIs and CAT scans, uh, as well as trained radiologists. And it, is this potentially a path by which we can avert mistakes? Because, you know, one of the biggest problems is like a misread mammogram or a misread, you know, X-ray. Uh, and that can lead to um, horrible consequences. AI has a lot of potential. And certainly there are a number of um, evangelists for AI. Eric Topol writes wonderfully about it. Um, uh, Bob Wachter from UCSF. And I think AI works very well with, again, things that are fairly straightforward. For example, reading a mammogram, right? And really all you have to do is feed enough images so the system learns what's normal what's not and that's really that's how you train a resident right you Mm -hmm. have them look at enough images and over time they can figure it out and so it it has worked actually quite well for things like that pattern recognition how to pick up a pneumonia on an x-ray or identifying a rash on someone's skin um but i think we've also seen that it has to be in conjunction with with human you know diagnosis as well because there's a context for all of these and you know, we have a lot of issues with uh, racial bias. A lot of these systems are fed images, for example, in mm-hmm. rashes on with only With dermatology, I just read a whole article about it, but, you know, all the dermatology texts are based on Caucasian individuals, you know. Right. So a rash will look different if the skin is darker. Yeah. And, and so our systems will also be learning biases. So we need to keep that in mind. I think AI will turn out to be a very useful tool. So, for example, you know, assisting people when you have a thousand things to do, it can help, you know, uh, wean down the number that you think are of concern that you can look at conjunction with a human being. It's also very helpful in places where there isn't good access to medicine. So, for example, in under-resourced countries that don't have dermatologists or don't have enough ophthalmologists mm-hmm. to do retinal scanning for diabetics, there it can be extremely helpful to quickly scan a thousand patients, pick out the 10 who need to be seen by a doctor for a more intensive treatment. So it's a question of how we utilize the tool rather than how do we, instead of turning over our responsibilities, because then once we have the machine come up with the diagnoses, we also have to decide how we want to use them. And that's the difference between being smart and being wise. It's easy to be smart. AI is smart. Mm-hmm. Up to date is smart. Um, and, and all the doctors and nurses are smart. But wisdom is, you know, garnered from years and years right. of caring for patients, deciding how one incorporates these things with the patient's belief system, their understanding, their requests, their desires, their philosophy. All these things require wisdom. And AI uh, can't really help with that right. part. And the human brain is infinitely more uh, complicated than any AI system. That is currently in use and, and maybe uh, exceeds the the lim- current physical limitations of of computing uh, because of more. The, the other day, I had a, I have a patient who I've has been my patient since I was an intern. He was discharged with a new heart attack. Any new doctor and got me as an intern. We're still together. I won't even tell you how long that is. But he walked in. This is pre COVID one day, and I knew instantly something was wrong. Mm-hmm. I know because I've known him for decades. And mm-hmm. AI can't do that, but I knew, and I really had to dig hard. Ca- call it intuition, it but it's sort of pattern recognition that the human mind is capable of doing. It's like something is the not pattern right. Recognition, yeah. Right, of knowing a person. Mm-hmm. And that of knowing a person, I think that's also the, you know, the selling point for primary care and having a, you know, a doctor or a nurse that is your caregiver for 
a prolonged period of time who then knows you when you're healthy, knows you when you're sick, and knows your family, your philosophy, what would happen if something went wrong. That's invaluable. And, um, you know, sometimes we get so enamored of, of high-tech medicine and all the specialists, which are all great. I love technology. But we really need in, in this country is, you know, more primary care for the basic medical care for patients to have. That's the part that's missing. Indeed. Okay, so so one of the major checks on medical errors these days is our current malpractice and liability system. Now, on the one hand, you know, it terrifies doctors. It increases medical costs because, you know, you keep checking and checking and checking with unnecessary tests uh, just to CYA, you know, what those initials stand for. Uh, On the other hand, you know, if we abandon the malpractice system, as some people suggest, and just have some sort of, I don't know, ex parte review of of cases, um, you know, will chaos ensue? Will more medical errors proliferate when doctors aren't under the gun, so to speak? I mean, it's a terrible conundrum. Well, let's think about what malpractice actually does. So the only way you can, malpractice is incredibly expensive to pursue. So lawyers can only take about 1% of cases that come to them. Mm-hmm. The, the error has to be very grave. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to prove that the bad outcome was a result of an error, and that's extremely hard to do. And the outcome has to be grave enough to garner a big enough payout to be mm-hmm. worth the uh, incredible cost of getting witnesses and doing all this. So as a result, of patients who experience some kind of harm don't get any help. So it's not a great deterrent. Also, it's, it depends on the value of the life of the person. I mean, if, if, uh, if it's a child and, you know, brain injury ensues, it could be tens of millions of dollars. If it's an 89 year old who was given the wrong medication, well, their life expectancy wasn't that uh, great. It's very sad, but that that is true. So, so for the, for starters, it only helps a very small fraction of patients who are harmed. But the second thing is think about our litigation system. I mean, for most medical errors are committed by very competent and caring clinicians. Mm-hmm. A very tiny few are those negligent idiots who should be thrown out of the practice. Mm-hmm. And those folks, those should go to court. Right? But that's really rare. Most often, there's a situation that made the error possible. You know, a nurse gives the wrong medication. You know, it's very rare. There's a, hmm, let me just give the wrong one here. Usually it happens because she is has too many patients. Mm-hmm. She's overworked. The light is bad. You can't read that. Mm-hmm. You're being interrupted. Oh, there's a hundred reasons, even though, yes, she made the error, but malpractice isn't really going to help the next patient, which is really our goal for increasing patient safety. What does help is if we can actually figure out why that happens. So that's on the global scale. Now, for the patient themselves, again, most patients don't get help. We could really think about another system more akin to like workers' compensation. Mm-hmm. You've experienced a harm. Is that harm sort of above and beyond what's expected with the routine standard of care? If so, you get some kind of compensation. If not, you know, when we and who, who we decide that an impartial, an impartial board of, of medical experts. Well, you know, uh, Denmark has actually pursued this system, mm-hmm. and it works remarkably well. So um, many, many more patients are able to be assisted because the bar is much lower, mm-hmm. and it doesn't cost a lot to do. Um, and it's not a penalizing system. It's not looking to find mm-hmm. fault in the doctor. Mm-hmm. It is, though, collecting data. So if we get a lot of cases of unexpected pressure ulcers, for example, oh, where is this happening? Let's know 
go focus on that hospital and try to make that less ha- less often. So it's also a wonderful repository for what's happening out there, whereas malpractice really isn't because it only garners a very small percentage of cases. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, does it work psychologically? Because, you know, I know of physicians, uh, you know, very, very talented physicians, you know, graduating top of their class and, you know, inevitably uh, high volume of patients, an error occurs. And they're absolutely devastated. You know, they're burned out. I, I've known personally some doctors who've committed suicide when confronted with malpractice cases. Uh, what about um, the uh, negative ramifications of a punitive system rather than a system that seeks to address the underlying cause of the problem? And uh, I think I think that that's tragic. Again, the punitive system works for those uh, few where there's true negligence at play, and that should be. The standard for that, but really, as you said, the most pay, you know doctors and nurses are working hard. They're trying to do their best, and they are devastated. They don't need to be punished by the system. They're usually so traumatized mm-hmm. that you're right. Suicide. They're conscientious is individuals. If they weren't, they wouldn't have gone into medicine. Usually. Exactly. The unconscientious ones take those folks to court. Mm-hmm. But everyone else, and of course, if every doctor and nurse who made an error ends up quitting. We're not going to have any doctors right. and nurses left. Right. So that's a bad, that's an adverse outcome for patients. Mm-hmm. So we need a system that treats um, the clinicians and the patients better. I mean, patients don't have a good time in the malpractice system either. No, you it's know, not it, very it, fair. Yeah. And even if they win, which is rare, it's not a win. You know, and mm-hmm. it takes five, six, seven Many years. years, yeah. Yeah. Right. Whereas the sort of um, workers' compensation system, you know, usually it's resolved in a matter of months and either you get a payout or you don't. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to make the error less, you know, common in the future. That's the real primary goal of that kind of system. In the book, you emphasize the importance of uh, patients as self-advocates is that, uh, you know, patients are actually part of the care team. And passive patients, patients who enter, you know, procedures or undergo hospitalization blindly or without advocates, because if you're really sick, you know, you're non-compass menti, you can't take personal responsibility, but you can have an advocate uh, by your side uh, who can observe, question, uh, you know, ask, is this the right procedure? Even, you know, make sure that uh, people coming to the bedside are washing their hands appropriately. You know, I, f- I feel mixed about that because patients shouldn't have to be the advocates in the system, right? We should have a system that takes care of we should have a system that takes care of patients um, and produces good outcomes and not bad outcomes. But you know, we haven't achieved that pristine state of perfection yet. Thus, patients do need to be advocates either on their own or with someone else. Because you're right, if you're feverish or nauseated or, or terrified, it's very hard to be advocating. But, you know, some patients don't have an advocate. People who live alone or more might be undomiciled may not have someone. And that's difficult um, because you do need another set of eyes on the ground. Medical care is so complex these days that you do need another set of eyes keeping track what medications are coming. You know, why is this study being done? At the very least, I suggest to patients at least ask what every medication is, why it's being given. You know, and, and write them down. And that is the doctors and nurses' job to explain these things to you. And if they seem like they're too busy to explain it, then get the patient advocate of the hospital or the ombudsman on the phone because that that is their job. Indeed. So uh, bottom line, I mean, this is a problem that is inherent uh, in medicine. Uh, what, you know, uh, let's, uh, you know, assume that, you know, we have the opportunity to uh, enact uh, political change uh, in this country at some point in the near future. 
what would you advocate? Oh, boy, the list is long, but a few things I think are important. One thing we don't have in the United States is a central repository for medical errors and adverse events. Hmm. So we have no way to collect data. So we don't even know where to be looking. Hmm. So we need a system where, you know, doctors and nurses can report even near misses. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, and blamelessly system, too, because there's a lot of conce there's concealment. I mean, frankly, since there's an adversarial uh, system, it's hard for doctors to admit errors. I mean, you know, uh, if you make a mistake, I mean, the natural human um, impulse is to pick up the phone and say, look, you know, I got to say, I'm really sorry that, you know, we gave you that wrong medication or that the surgeon, you know, nicked uh, your, you know, artery. But you, if, if you do that, your, your malpractice insurer will say, well, why did you do that? You know, it's an admission of guilt. Exactly. So the, so the part two is that there has to be a separate system. So again, uh, Denmark has this wonderful system where you can file a report and that is separate from the malpractice system and no report that's filed there can be used, you know, in court against the doctor. There's a separate system for that, mm -hmm. but there's an ironclad wall between them. So mm -hmm. that's really important. Um, so that's the, the, the big one that I think needs to happen. And I think the second is to have a non-punitive way like the workers' compensation to address mm -hmm. the vast majority of, you know, smaller errors um, or adverse outcomes mm -hmm. that, that deserve some attention but don't need someone to be taken to court, you know, for five years. Mm-hmm. Right. We need a reform of, of the system. You know, and I say this from the standpoint of, you know, as a physician, because uh, the threat of malpractice, you know, looms large for us uh, in the medical field. And it can have a devastating effect on our morale. But, you know, we do need a system and we do need to uh, acknowledge uh, our errors and do a better job. Uh, hospitals have a review system, though. There's, there's, it's called M&M. Uh, review. There's, isn't that something that you undertake? And it's, it's been a while since I practiced in the hospital, but, uh, you know, you go over cases and you say, you know, how could we have done this better? Sure. The uh, Morbidity and Mortality Conference is an academic conference to examine, you know, cases that didn't go as well as they should have. Now, that's supposed to be completely academic and everything is confidential. Um, in the past, they were pretty histrionic and a lot of, you know, burning someone at the stake, usually it was the intern. Right. And we're trying to move back from that and make that an Get educational experience. Get away from that experience. culture. Yeah, yeah so that, that's important. But we still have this idea that somebody did something wrong, as opposed to how did the system make that error possible? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're taking care of too many patients, well, then you're guaranteeing error. And, and that's the yeah. error in the system, not that the person forgot to check the potassium, mm -hmm. but we have a system that makes it impossible. Or we have a electronic medical record that floods your brain with minutiae that you can't possibly think. Um, and so you make a misdiagnosis because you're busy filling in the boxes of mm -hmm. a ridiculous computerized system. Yeah. And, and I can certainly relate to that because there was a time at Bellevue uh, when, you know, there was kind of almost like a, you know, uh, it was like a game of chance. Uh, you know, you'd have a team of three or four interns uh, and, you know, we would admit on different days and, uh, it was kind of the luck of the draw. Like some nights you were really lucky, you had like one or two admissions. And some nights you'd have like four, five, or six admissions. And the nights when the other guy got a lot of admissions, uh, I would say, wow, I really dodged a bullet that night. But then <laughs> I became the recipient of that. I remember at one point my patient load as an intern swelled from six to seven to eight to nine to up to 15 and the other interns on the team had like five or six patients. And it was kind of like, well, they're lucky. They don't. And finally, you know, my junior resident, uh, 
who was in charge of us and supervising us, you know, a young physician and uh, him or herself said, this isn't fair. You've got to take some of Hoffman's patients off his hands. He's just getting fried here. He can't cope with it. And, you know, unfortunately, that those are situations that, that happen in big hospitals. Right, and, but I think we have to think about that in terms of patient safety. So there are data that um, from the nursing perspective, for every additional patient added to a nurse's roster above a certain level, the error rate goes up and the mortality rate goes up. Mm-hmm. And you can see that on on a shift-by-shift shift basis. So rather than having to reinvent the wheel every time, maybe we have a system that says, okay, you know, when the patient census goes up, we need this many extra nurses. We need to bring in an extra physician because it's not, not safe for one doctor to have 15 patients on their own rather than improvise every single time. Exactly. Well, there we did a, an improv and uh, reduced the load finally, but I came pretty close. I came pretty close. You know, the expression uh, skiing on the edge of your skis, you know, uh, I was just about to spin out. Um, so uh, another element to this error equation is fatigue and sleep deprivation. And that's very real among young physicians, nurses to some extent. Um, measures are being undertaken to limit uh, the number of hours, consecutive hours that physicians need to be on call. But that's actually been criticized because they say, well, you know, how are you going to train a good doctor if you put them on like an eight-hour shift? That's too cushy. They need to, you know, it's an intense period. It's boot camp for doctors. Right. Well, one one thing is that you have to recognize that usually the criticisms come from the previous generation, you know, back in our days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we have to recognize that medicine has changed. You know, back in our days, maybe you weren't having 24 hours, you know, surgery and CT scans. You know, things calm down at night on the weekends, mm-hmm. but no longer. Also, length of stay was much longer back then. So it isn't really comparable. The second, though, real thing is to recognize the, the trade-off that the more you control hours, the more handoffs you have. And handoffs yeah. increase the handoffs, rate of errors. Right. Because, so you have to balance them. Yeah. Um, it, it's best to, you know, if, if one doctor is there most of the time caring for a very sick patient, they're more familiar. And the handoffs, unfortunately, are, are pretty fast. You know, uh, in, in my day, it was done with index cards. It would be like, okay, here's our patients that, you know, we're, we need to watch. Index card, index card, index card with about a two or three minute explanation. And, you know, you had to communicate in a very cursory way, uh, sometimes a pretty hairy situation with a patient. And then that doctor would go home and you'd be responsible for the other, you know, you were covering the other doctor. And that, right. you know. So, so, so knowing that, then the hospitals need to say, okay, handoff is a critical time. So we should allot an hour for handoffs. So the doctors can either see the patients together or mm-hmm. talk in depth rather than assume you'll fit it in somehow uh, in your magical extra time that nobody has. So the paying attention to these realistic things rather than just sort of letting people figure it out on their own would be very beneficial. Indeed. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground here, and there's a lot more to say about the subject uh, in your excellent book. Uh, you know, you're a great writer, and that uh, sounds like an oxymoron. A, a, a doctor's a great writer, but you've incorporated uh, both skills. Uh, and, you know, clearly you're a you know, compassionate and uh, thoughtful physician, and you reflect on your work. Uh, that's uh, the substance of the new book, When We Do Harm. And as a reminder, Dr. Ofri is the author of a great new article that appears in this week's New Yorker. It's just been posted 
uh, a Bellevue doctor's COVID-19 diary, where she recounts uh, her experiences on the front lines at Bellevue Hospital, where a lot of COVID patients landed. Check it out. Daniel O'Free, thank you so much for uh, being who you are and, uh, you know, witnessing, you know, some of the, especially with COVID-19, some of the real uh, seminal events of our of our time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site, it's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.